Do you ever look at someone and wonder how they became the person that they are today? Like, what shaped their views? What drives them to do the work that they do? With today's guest, you can in some ways trace a straight line from her early influences to now. But seen another way, where she's arrived is completely opposite to what you might expect. Here's Mary Lou. I'm Professor Mary Lou Rasmussen and I work in the School of Sociology here at the ANU and I'm the convener of the Gender, Sexuality and Culture major and I teach the Intro to Gender Studies course, which I love, and I also teach a course called Going Public, which is about public debates about sex and feminism. And I'm also teaching a course for the first time, which is called Young People and Sex. Mary Lou moved to Canberra four years ago. She had a solid middle-class upbringing and grew up in the leafy eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Her family was religious and conservative, which saw her attend the Siena Ladies Convent School. The same school that Magda Sabansky went to, in fact. After studying history and politics at the University of Melbourne, Mary Lou didn't know what she wanted to do, so she became a public servant in Canberra for a few years. Between that and her PhD, she completed a graduate diploma in education and spent quite a bit of time in America. Her experiences in the US were influential. They put her on her eventual career path, studying debates about gender and sexuality in education. When I was living in the United States, I was involved with an organisation called the Lesbian Avengers, and I was part of this, um, like, I suppose, offshoot of the Avengers, which we called La Crop, which was the Lesbian Avengers Civil Rights Organising Project. I worked in Idaho because there was legislation in Idaho, a proposition that was basically trying to make it illegal to have any um, positive representation at all of anything that wasn't heterosexuality in educational institutions and libraries. And I couldn't quite believe that in the 1990s that this was happening, (laughs) that there could be, you know, like in the United States, uh, a movement to try and make it illegal to have any positive representation of LGBT issues. So um, I worked with local people um, going door to door in um, a place called Sandpoint, Idaho. And I just um, found it really interesting talking to people who weren't like me, who were from, um, you know, a fairly, um, a state that's seen, I think, by many people in the US as um, fairly conservative. Um, But I really found it enriching having conversations about the proposition and what they thought about it. I worked with the Bonner County Human Rights Task Force. I thought, I'm interested in doing more work in this space. And I think that at that time, there were a lot of debates about how, particularly in education contexts, more work could be done. And it was kind of just beginning to develop a profile in Australia at that time. So how did you go from going to a Catholic high school to then working with the Lesbian Avengers? (laughs) Um, Well, I think that um, living in Canberra had a lot to do with that. I lived in a group house in Canberra that was full of um, lesbian women who were really political. They were working in AIDS action and in homelessness and... 
Um, I had um, really great conversations around the dinner table about like uh, queer politics. And um, I think I learned a lot about not just, you know, what it meant to be a lesbian woman, but also to think about like the politics of, I suppose, different queer cultures within Canberra. And that kind of, I suppose, propelled me to look for that sort of thing when I went overseas. And I just kind of happened upon the Lesbian Avengers like in like a weekend in New York City. I hadn't planned it. It just was like many things in life happenstance. I went to a meeting, the Avengers were there, and there was a woman who was one of the founders of the Avengers, Maxine Wolf, and she asked me if I'd like to go to New England for a weekend in the fall and they drive me up and all I had to do was go to a bar and talk to women about politics and I thought that sounded like a pretty good weekend activity and that kind of set me off on I suppose where I am now. And how did you go from being involved in activism to deciding that academia was a path for you? I think that um, it's the good question. I think that being um, an activist, I found incredibly rewarding, but I also found um, the politics within queer communities fascinating. And I think I was a bit naive when I started out and not really, I suppose, have an appreciation of like, the many different ways that people who identify as LGBTQI work at odds with one another in trying to, like I suppose, defeat those propositions I was talking about earlier. There were, um, I think, groups that were trying to prevent us doing the work that we were doing in Idaho, which I thought was really important work. And so that, I suppose, made me realise that um, there's clearly not one way of thinking about what it means to be LGBTQI. And so really my PhD study was about how people imagine that they're helping or providing support in education to young people who are LGBTQI identified. And in order to do that, you've got to have a vision in your mind of what it means to be in that community. And I think that um, the different people who were imagining projects of support actually had, I think, some quite dis important distinctions about how they understood the community and what help looked like. And I was really trying to tease out those distinctions and that became more interesting to me than having an advocacy role. Mm. Clearly what you're doing is important. The sex education that we receive in high school goes on to have a pretty profound impact on us, I think. Did you have any sex education in high school? I did, yes, and we watched a number of videos that were cartoons, essentially. <laughs> um, did it have a profound impact on you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess probably the way in which sex was approached in high school for me made it feel like a squeamish sort of subject and like a subject that uh, I couldn't really attack very openly or very boldly. Yep, yep. Yeah. And I think that sex education is still done in a fairly appalling way in Australian schools. So mm -hmm. I think that there's some exceptions, but I always like talk to my um, first year students about their experiences. And when I was um, 
teaching teachers as well, I wish to ask them about it. And very few of the cohorts I spoke to, and I've also observed sex education lessons happening in schools. And that was quite a long time ago now, though. And I think that there is, there's not a lot of um, training and education for people who are going to be teachers about how you become a great sex sexuality educator in schools. And I think that, you know, I understand that there's lots of other priorities for schools. Most teachers like would identify as an English teacher or a maths teacher or a PE teacher, but not a sex education teacher. And, you know, schools are completely overburdened in what they're asked to do. But um, I think that um, it would be great to have sexuality education have a higher profile in our schools. And, we, and young people, I know from a lot of research that I've done, really want the opportunity to talk about sex, sexuality, gender and relationships at school, which kind of in some way surprises me because I think that they get so much access to that online now. It's not like they can't go and answer any question that they've, you know, they want regardless of how boutique it might be um, online. But it seems to me that young people are really interested in hearing what their peers have got to say about these issues within their community at school. So what kind of an impact did the sex education you received as a young person have on you? Well, I um, was a very straight high school student. I remember one particular incident when I was at high school and we had a teacher who was kind of renowned at school, I think, for having eight children, you know, a good Catholic woman. And she um, was teaching us about a thing called the Billings Method. And the Billings Method, um, for those of you who don't know, is a technique that I was taught often in um, Catholic schools about how to um, manage your fertility without using contraception because contraception is seen as not being okay within the Catholic Church, but a lot of people still do use it. I'm aware of that. But so the Billings Method, you're meant to um, have a sense of your cycle by um, testing the the viscosity of your vaginal fluid which you know was a pretty confronting thing to hear when you were like 14 or 15 but if that wasn't explicit enough for us um, our teacher also explained to us how she liked to taste it so she could tell where she was at in her cycle and that was a fairly confronting bit of information for us all to swallow so to speak (laughs) and so um, I think that you know I think that moments like that in your own education stick with you it stuck with me anyway and I think that um and, and I suppose, you know, looking back on it, I was also, I think there was an assumption when I was at high school that I was going to, you know, that I would be heterosexual and that I would want to get married and that I would want to have children. And, and none of those things have happened to me. I didn't grow up to be somebody who was in a heterosexual relationship and I didn't get married and I haven't had children. So it's interesting to think about, like, the relevance of all that for, you know, who I have become You mentioned before about how young people are quite interested in what their peers think about a subject of sexuality and you recently conducted a survey with colleagues from Deakin University and from Monash uh, of 1,200 Gen Z students on subjects of religion and sexuality. What were some of the main findings that came out of that? We surveyed um, young people and we did focus groups in schools and we also did interviews 
post the survey. Because we wanted all the focus groups to be the same, we had to ask the same questions in each focus group, but um, we weren't allowed to ask questions about sexuality because one of the school sectors, we, we wanted to like interview people across all the different school sectors, and one of the school sectors said that there was no relationship in their minds at all between the way that people experience their sexuality and gender and their worldviews. So we weren't allowed to ask any questions at all about sexuality in the focus groups we did in schools to inform the survey design. When we did, came to do the survey, which was a random sample of 1,200 Australian young people, we decided that we'd ask about sexuality anyway and gender because I really thought that those things were pertinent to how young people imagine the world around them. But we were also, um, in the design of the study, really interested in not just talking to young people who were religious or young people who were identifying as LGBTQ. We were really interested in talking to young people in the broad, which is why we wanted to have a um, representative sample of Australian young people and to really find out what they thought generally about sexuality education among, and also about religion and education and how they developed their world views in relationship to other topics as well. Like, um, for instance, they thought about people who might identify as um, secular, like Dawkins. And the young people that we spoke to were, over 50% of them identified as non-religious, which we thought was really interesting. Only 10% of the sample of young people that we spoke to identified as religiously committed. So like over 80% of the young people that we spoke to and the survey just per chance was administered at the same time as the marriage equality survey was being um, conducted. And of course, the young people that we spoke to weren't allowed to participate in that survey, but they could participate in our study. And like, you know, they in very large numbers were very, very supportive of marriage equality. And they really um, wanted to um, have better quality sexuality education that was inclusive of LGBTQI people. And they also were very inclusive of education about religion. They wanted, on the whole, to learn about religions. They didn't want direct religious instruction, but they were really interested in learning about um, other people's worldviews and cultural and religious difference at school. But they, I don't think that they felt that a lot of them were, like the students at religious schools were getting the most education about religion and about other religions, but students who went to public schools weren't getting a lot of that information unless they, a very small percentage of them did a sociology of religion course in year 11 or 12. So it was interesting to me like what they wanted and what they had access to was quite distinct. Maybe unlike um, the generation before them, were also um, very careful not to diminish people who had religious beliefs. So they weren't anti-religious on the whole in any way, the vast majority of them. They felt it was fine for people to practice their religion, but they didn't want, um, we asked them about religious exemptions, which is that idea that say, for instance, you can prevent people from working at a school based on their sexual or gender identity or if they have a baby or have an affair 
And so we asked them about those sorts of exemptions and, and on, not surprisingly, they hadn't heard about exemptions before and didn't know they existed. But when they did find out about them in the surveys, they were highly opposed to them. So they were okay with religion, but not when it infringed on the rights of particular groups. In terms of the percentage of young people you found who identify as being religious, um, I think that was a finding that goes against what the census data had been telling us. That's right. But um, I think that we generally have a notion that the younger generations are more socially liberal than older generations. So what was it that you found that was surprising to you? We were surprised by the amount of young young people who identified as non-religious and that I think was because we were directly talking to them and not that their parents weren't filling out the survey on their behalf but they were doing it directly with us. I suppose like that idea of what socially progressive is, like I think that sometimes people associate social progressivism with like a move away from religion and I think that while young people were less religious they were often very were quite identified with being spiritual but not religious or seeking out other sorts of experiences, whether it might be um, yoga or astrology. So they had lots of diverse interests that were, I suppose, um, not associated with secular practices or beliefs. So that was really interesting to me that that... So there was a sense that, but they also, uh, especially the young people that stick into my mind now who um, had parents who identified as committed religious, some of them had like, I think, taken on their parents' beliefs, but they also were trying to distance themselves from them. So even the young people that were, I think, the most conservative in our group really which trying to make arguments around those generational differences in terms of progressivism so that was interesting as well mm. and you're currently beginning to research more into the area of religious exemptions that's right I've been studying um, the submissions to the Ruddock review on religious freedom and also there was a subsequent review um, undertaken by the Senate in regards to a bill moved by Penny Wong about specifically discrimination in education. And I've been really like hitting my head against a wall around this issue of religious exemptions. And like when I have read those submissions and I'm working with a colleague who's involved in the project as a research assistant, um, Sulamith um, Graffenstein, who's a, um, a recent PhD graduate at ANU. She's been helping me with this. And one of the things I think that we've noticed in the submissions to the surveys is that people tend to focus on religious freedom and parents or they focus on the rights of children and sexuality. It's interesting like the, the way that that debate gets divided and is divisive. And so I've been I'm playing with this idea of um what I'm calling, I suppose, a politics of exemption or exemption politics. And I'm interested in how the debates about exemptions are being used by both sides as a way to, I think, both prosecute their cases, which I think they have very strong beliefs about and I think genuinely held. But also I think that there's a way that as soon as you get involved in the language of exemption, 
and the politics of exemption that it's hard for it not to become an us and them issue that really loses sight of like people who are queer and religious or um, like you know the complex ways that people of faith understand gender and sexuality so I'm, I'm quite interested in how thinking about these debates about exemption and religious freedom will play out in Australia especially with the election of the Morrison government. What do you think is the consequence of that kind of polarisation and what kind of understandings do you think that people could come to if they weren't so deeply polarised? I really worry about the polarisation on both sides because I feel that it doesn't really provide us with space to... Like, I feel like you have to take a position which then becomes something that others, other groups... So at the moment in England, they've just made sexuality education um, compulsory, which is something I've kind of always fantasised about in the Australian context, to have a sexuality education curriculum that's laid down and everybody has to do. But one of the consequences of that in um, Birmingham, where I'm going in a few weeks' time, is that lots of... um, parents who are Muslim parents and relatively new arrivals into England are up in arms about this new curriculum because of the way that it is inclusive of LGBTQI issues. So it kind of sets up this thing where you've got people who, you know, are Muslim and who are generally not white are seen, you know, being produced as the problem (laughs) and who need to get on board with the curriculum. And then you've got the progressive LGBT curriculum that people are trying to say, you know, needs to be taught in the same way all over England. And I think that you saw kind of similar sorts of things here around the survey. Like there were a few different electorates that kind of became the no electorates and they're still being identified in that way post the most recent election so race really starts playing out um, and ethnicity and religion all become more enhanced and more potentially like, you know, um, more polarised, I think, within the context of these debates about sexuality. And so I really want to resist that polarisation because I worry, like, I think that if you get heavily invested in, like, this is the way that sexuality education must be taught at all times in order to be inclusive then, you know, it can kind of have these unanticipated consequences where you've got, you know, a lot of parents who um, have children at those schools who are part of those communities who see themselves as alienated from them through the lens of sexuality education. And I think that you can have... It's really hard to have, like, you know, great sexuality education within that context. Even in recognition of there being this great divide, it's kind of difficult to see where we might find compromise and how we could come up with policies that would be satisfactory to, you know, a majority of both sides. Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, that's a good observation, I think. And I think that for me, that sense that if we keep focusing on exemptions, you'll never get to another place. That the exemptions, like, you know, Like, I think that, you know, exemptions are a good way of, like, um, mobilising people on both sides. But I think that, it you know, I don't know if it's a good way of having other sorts of conversations about um, gender and sexuality and religion and belief that, are um, you know, could take us in lots of different directions. I've got 
um, a colleague at RMIT, Anna Hickey Moody, and she is, I think, doing some really interesting work looking at faith and the way that gender and sexuality emerge within communities where people of faith reside in Australia. And I think that that's, you know, showing us some um, interesting other ways of thinking about these issues that aren't dominated by the politics of exemption. In doing the research that you do, you're having to confront a lot of people indirectly attacking your identity and who you are. How do you sort of manage to do the work that you do and not take some of those things too personally or do you take it personally and how does it affect you? I think that, um, like I've certainly got colleagues who do research in this area that have had like really serious attacks made on them and on the LGBTQI community more broadly. And I've had, um, I suppose, moments of that, but not anything like some of my colleagues have experienced. And maybe part of that's because um, like the work that I have done in this space hasn't really been associated with advocacy. And I think that when you're seen as being being somebody who's associated with advocacy, you're more of a target. And I think that my work has been more, I suppose, questioning of agendas around this work and, and the framing of public debates about gender and sexuality, which is kind of what interests me the most. I'm kind of interested in the normative politics around LGBTQI plus communities and how debates get framed and how we can have public conversations about gender, sex and sexuality. Like I'm excited to be at ANU and in Canberra, especially at this time when these debates are, I think, on the public agenda, because I think that we really need to be shining a light on how they're framed. And so it's not so much about, I think that we do need people as well, though, at the same time who are really fierce advocates and academics. I think that that's, there's a really important role for that as well. It's just not a path I've taken, but I do really admire the people who do that work. And I think that it's, um, it's really critical work. And I think that, you know, I'm still somebody who identifies as a queer academic and is identified as one within that space as well. And I think that for me that like manifests in my work in the sorts of PhD students I get to work with and the projects that they are working on and what I get to teach, like I talked about at the beginning. like So it's a part of my everyday, but it's not been so much a part of like how I've been situated, um, I suppose, in public commentary. Your identity has influenced the research that you do, but you feel some discomfort about being framed as a queer researcher. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, I think it. Well, I think it. Um, I suppose, like what I've been talking about today, is that there's, I think, lots of different ways that people imagine what it is to be queer or religious or Australian or white or Catholic, which is like how I grew up. And so, I don't think any of those things is one thing. And so, like, I don't want to be like you know, in my own family, I've got, and in my extended family, I've got like 
quite a lot of relatives who identify as gay and queer in different ways. So I think that there's a sense that like I don't think that there's one way of inhabiting these things and I certainly don't think that the way that I imagine it is something which is um, something that I can then say, well, other people might think in that same way as I do just because. And I think that that's really true in the way that I think about like the fields of research around gender, sex and sexuality, that there's a lot of room for lots of different sorts of people within that space, regardless of how they identify, you know? And um, so I, I, I don't wanna just, you know, work with people who imagine that there's like a, a bounded space for research on gender, sex and sexuality, which is associated with LGBTQI plus issues. Do you think that there have been people who have viewed your research through the lens of your identity? I think that sometimes I feel like that happens in, um, like you might, for instance, get asked to do a lot of reviews around LGBTQI plus things as opposed to gender and sex and sexuality more broadly. So you kind of become like, you know, the go-to person for research in that particular space which can work in you know creating a name and a way of like I suppose standing out but it can also be a way of easily being pigeonholed so it's a you know it's a double-edged sword I think and I think that I want my re I, I don't want to be reduced to just doing work in that space I'm interested in like um, I suppose public debates about gender sex and sexuality more broadly and how they're staged, where they're staged, who gets to be involved and how they're framed. I'm, I'm less interested in both debates that are linked very squarely to you know, particular ways of imagining identity politics. Okay, um, was there anything else that you'd like to add? It's interesting like when you're working in this space, how you, like, like I think especially the longer you work in it, you kind of imagine that the work that you're doing, for instance, around gender or something, which like you kind of take things for granted about people's understandings of gender and sex and sexuality. So I remember starting off my PhD research, you know, thinking about how people thought about advocacy for LGBTQ young people in schools in Australia and the US. And I remember like, getting into the car with my dad who's you know um a very conservative catholic and and he was asking me like you know what's your phd going to be on he'd driven two hours to come and collect me and from where i had been on a retreat and he was going to take me home and you know he was so he was you know doing me a big favor he's always been incredibly supportive but you know we don't see eye to eye around this stuff at all so he said, you know, what are you doing your work on? And I thought, like, rather than tell him it was about LGBTQI stuff, because he's so conservative, I'm just going to tell him it's about gender. And that will, like, be a way of deflating the issue with my dad. And he said, well, what's there to know, Louis? You know, there's, there's girls and there's boys, and that's all there is to it. <laughs> and I think that that sense of, like, the complexities of how people, like, do gender and undo gender and the project of and the politics like there's a whole field now of anti-gender politics both in academic scholarship but also in like advocacy 
And it's just interesting to me to see like how these things that kind of seem so straightforward <laughs> to some people, you know, continue to hold um, a lot of complexities and a lot of political capital and, and still fascinate me. You mentioned before that you don't deal in advocacy as such, but has all the thinking and all the research that you've done helped you in any way to bridge the divide between you and your parents? <laughs> uh, like I think that um, it's kind of something that we've just chosen to look the other way at. So we, 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 there was never a great divide. There was just a, let's not talk about that. You know, so they've always been really supportive of me and of my um, partners. But I think that there's just that sense that, you know, that when you go home, there's some things it's just not worth talking about. <laughs> and that's something that, like, at least with my dad, I just um, sideswiped and said, I'm going to compartmentalise that and not go there. Like with other members of my family, I certainly do. But I think that there's, you know, he grew up in a time in Australia and as a very devout Catholic, which I think, you know, had really different ways of understanding gender, sex and sexuality. But, you know, he is accepting of me regardless. Like, like when I see polarising figures around religion in the Australian context, like they're not unfamiliar to me. And maybe that's part of my interest in this space and the work as well, like that sense of like um you know what it means to inhabit these spaces when you've grown up in a very catholic context it seems like if your father both your mother and father um have found a way to hold their views still but also be supportive of you yeah then that's almost like a microcosm of how things might be able to work on a broader scale yeah. in terms of finding some kind of common ground and i think that's true but i'm also aware that i'm incredibly privileged in that regard and that that's not true for everybody in like you know i know that there's a lot of people who that is not the case for at all and who have also had, you know, pretty traumatising experiences around religion. I don't want to also assume that other people can share that experience. Um, that's the way it's worked out for me, but not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> if you could end this on a positive note in some sort of way, what would you say? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think that there's a lot of, you know, still interesting questions to get researched in this space. You know, I, I find that there's a lot of interesting work to be done around gender, sex and sexuality in the Australian context. And I think that there's a lot of room to um, enhance the way that we have public conversations in this space. You know, there's a lot of great work to be done to be thinking about how people are able to have conversations like about consent and about desire and pleasure and about how they want to um, embody their gender and be in the world that I think that I'm looking forward to the next, you know, 20 years <laughs> and seeing what happens in this space and also where my own research evolves and how it evolves, because I think that there's um, still so many questions that I'm interested in. Mary Lee Rasmussen, thanks very much for talking to me. No worries. 
This Academics Life is written and produced by me, Ivana Ho, for the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences. The theme music is Snowblower by Flower Crown. If you like the show, be sure to tell all your academic and non-academic friends to tune in and listen to our sister podcast, Better Things, for insights on how to approach the world to live a better life. Catch you next time.